Father, we do thank you so much for what you have accomplished through Christ on our behalf so that we could hide in him, that his blood indeed atone for our sin and for all the sin of all those who would believe in him. And Lord, we do profess our faith in Christ. We pray that you would, through the power of your word and the working of your spirit, work in us today, sanctify us, convince us of the joy that you have provided for us in your Son and in your saving grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's always such a blessing to be with you. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're so happy we can always come together and study God's Word and learn of all the truth. So let's not squander this opportunity to worship God in this way. Those of you with multiple children are going to identify with this. Your older kids often can get a little bit resentful of how soft you are on your younger children. You guys ever discovered this? Your older kids saying things, you don't spank them as much, you don't discipline them as much, they get whatever they want, and uh, there's a little bit of resentment. Of course, there's a number of reasons for this. The number one being, well, yeah, you are actually quite softer on them. They're kind of like your grandkids almost. You teach them, treat them a little bit nicer than you treated the rest of the kids. Another reason is probably because you, yourself as a parent, have matured. You're not as harsh as maybe you were when they were younger because you didn't know how to parent. You've kind of figured out what battles to fight against your kids. And uh, I suppose another reason that you're a little bit kinder, a little softer is that these younger kids actually look at their older siblings and learn what to do and what not to do. They realize not to touch the stove, so to speak, right? They see their older sister doing something and then getting punished for it, and they realize, huh, that's something I don't want to do. And so they don't get in trouble as much for that reason. Well, that third reason in the heart of that child, you could call this a motivation for good works. Maybe it's not a pure motivation, but it certainly is a motivation. It's a sort of self-preservation, maybe their motivation for doing the right thing. Maybe it's not, you know, some kind of holy living perspective or some because they've been reading the Bible or something like that. They just look and see, I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be punished. I don't want to go through the, the discipline and all the problems that my siblings go through. And so they have this motivation to do the right thing. And maybe it's not a pure motivation, but it is a motivation nonetheless. And that motivation is really grounded in sort of self-interest. Can you think of other poor motivations for doing the right thing or pursuing holy living, so to speak? Some people do works in order, in their minds, in order to pay God back. Have you ever heard this kind of reasoning? Oh, God has done so much for me. God has done so many things for me in Christ I'm going to try to somehow pay him back. Now, it's not bad to worship God, and we're going to get to that, especially as we get into the next larger section of 1 Peter. It's not bad to think in terms of worshiping God because of all the things he's done for you. But you have to realize you can't pay God back, right? This is, this is what sometimes theologians call a debtor's ethic. I'm going to do what I do based upon trying to just give back to God what I owe Him. I owe, and I'm going to be able, if I do enough good things, I'll be able to pay God off. I'll please Him in that way. Well, that's impossible, of course, and that kind of motivation ultimately is not really good theology. Of course, another bad motive for holy living would be something along the lines of hypocrisy, right? You're living to impress others. I'm going to be pious and good so as to make an impression on others, not just to help them or encourage them like we would in a community of, of believers, but, but really to get them to think something positive about me, to, to, make, to give them an impression of me that I am pious and good, and they ought to look to me and they ought to follow me because I am a pious person who does always the right thing. That's, that's really the bottom line with that is hypocrisy. You're trying to be something you really aren't. You're not motivated by the right things. Well, another motivation, of course, would be trying to 
please God in terms of legalism. This would be, wouldn't be a good motivation. Maybe you can think, think of some other motivations for holy living, that would, holy living that wouldn't be right. Well, what Peter is doing in the first part of his book, first part of this letter, is to give these elect exiles what motivation they need for holy living. What is the proper and right motivation to worship God and to do the right thing? What is it? It is to His glory and His praise. The motivation should ultimately be joy in Christ, joy and praise of God. I want to do the right thing because it honors God. It blesses Him. And I rejoice and I thank God that I can do things that would honor Him and glorify Him. This is the ultimate motivation to do what's right. This is what Peter is teaching the people, the elect exiles there in the first part of this book. Verse 3 says, he just breaks out in song, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is sort of like a song. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. Verse 8, you believe in Him and rejoice that joy that's inexpressible. Verse 12, he goes on and explains, we enjoy the reality of things that the prophets anticipated. Even angels look on to longingly. Now he goes on to say, all this praise, all this joy should fuel holy living. You fill yourself, your heart, with the truth of what God has done. All the joy and rejoicing in that, you persevere and you live a holy life. You do this for the praise of His glorious great. You do it out of joy. Joy is the foundation of our ethics, of our good works. We're not earning something with God. We're not meriting some sort of better life. We're not getting some sort of physical blessing out of it. In fact, we may do the most righteous things and still live a life of persecution and torture. And there are many of great examples of that, people who lived holy lives, and yet they were tortured and persecuted and perhaps even died a martyr's death. So we don't do it out of some sort of personal self-interest. We do it out of the joy and praise of God. We want to get to that point, as Hebrews describes of Jesus, the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. He put up with the shame of the cross. Peter wants to lay this foundation that's fundamental to our lives, living holy to God, doing the right thing, persevering in Christ. He wants to lay that foundation. So I'm calling this section of 1 Peter, the really Peter's first section, Pillars of Joy. And if you look at this section, it begins verse 3, goes down to verse 12. What I've identified are three pillars of joy. The first one is this week that we're looking at today, and that first pillar is hope. That's verse 3 through 5. 6 through 9 is perseverance. We enjoy the perseverance that God provides us through hardship. That's 6 through 9. And then 10, 11, and 12 is the last part. And we learn of this joy that all these people for several thousand years wrote about and anticipated the day in which we live. Even angels who live having never experienced sin, only glory, they look at what we experience longingly. We have a joy that even angels look to. And so in that we rejoice. And then Peter goes on in that next section and says essentially because of all this joy, we can endure, we can persevere, we can live holy lives. So this is what we're going to be looking at the next few weeks, these pillars of joy. And we'll begin with the first one this week, which is hope. Let me read to you verses 3, 4, and 5. Follow along as I read aloud. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last 
time. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Now, everything that I'm going to say about our hope today springs from that second phrase. Peter, excuse me, erupts in joy. He sings this little song, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to living hope. This is just, this flows directly from what he said in the introductory verses. And we looked at those extensively last week. He has caused us. He has regenerated us. That's the actual word. He has caused us to be born again. He has caused in us regeneration, the new birth. God did it. It's in the active voice there. It's not passive. God didn't watch it happen. It didn't happen apart from Him. He he reacted to something we did as if we initiated some sort of new birth. No, He did it. He's the one that caused us to be born again. He's the one who did it, and so the ESV and some other translations rightly say it. He, uh, by mercy, He caused us to be born again. By His great mercy, He caused us to be born again. So that establishes He didn't do it, you know, NFL draft style. Who are my best performers out there? I'm going to pick them. I'm going to find out who can fit within my system best. And whoever fits within my system best, or whatever position I need the most, I'm going to pick that person. Who is the best performer? No, he did it not based on our performance, not based on what we'd done, but according to his great mercy. Again, we talked about this last week. It is solely based right there in his mercy, not based on accomplishment, based in his mercy. Folks, if our eternal state was based on our accomplishment, accomplishment, none of us would make it. We would all fail. We would not have a living hope. Because it's based on what God has done for us, it fills us with hope. We've been born again to this living hope. I do want to mention before we move on, very briefly, the way that the Bible talks about Christian hope as opposed to the way we normally think and use the word hope. Human hope is ambivalent, meaning it's, it can go either way. It's about something that can happen either way. Some of you, and I would imagine some people in the lock, locker room for the UH Rainbow Warriors, hoped very strongly that they would win yesterday. They believed, maybe they convinced themselves, you know, if, if this happens and if that happens and if we can really do good in this area... And if Oregon really does poorly in that area, if we do this, if all of these things sort of fall in place, we can pull off a win. We can pull off this upset. And, of course, that wasn't just for the Rainbow Warriors. Not just the Bows were thinking that way, but people in schools across America yesterday. And even in locker rooms right now as the games begin to start for the NFL, they hold out hope. But that hope is unsure. They have no idea if these things are going to happen. There's no certainty at all. They're just sort of crossing their fingers. Maybe they're putting things together as best they can, but in essence, it's ambivalent. It could go either way. They're just crossing their fingers and hoping, boy, I hope it rains tomorrow. My yard could really use the grass. You don't know. There's no certainty about it. The way we use the word hope is really ambivalent hope. It's what you might call credulity. It's just blind credulity. You're, you're really hoping. You really wish. You really, maybe you've prayed for something to happen. Maybe you've even prayed for your football team to win, right? And you really are hoping, but you don't know. There's zero certainty. We don't know if it's going to happen or if it's not going to happen. Even if you're trying to sort of nudge things in certain ways, you don't have any certainty at all. But the way we talk about hope is not the kind of hope that we see described in Scripture, as Christian hope. That's not the way the Bible talks about hope, the way we talk about hope. Our hope is not built on that shifting sand of ambivalence. Our hope is built on the stated word and accomplishment of Jesus Christ. Our hope is built on what Christ has said and done, what God has accomplished through Christ in history. 
Our hope is built on someone who said things and accomplished things exactly according to His Word. Our hope is built on thousands of years of absolute, perfect accomplishment, carrying out everything in perfect order as what He said. And so our hope is a certain hope. It's not just a hope whether it goes one way or another. I really, really hope it turns out in my way. It is a hope that is certain about the outcome. It's more like eager anticipation, our hope, right? It's not, there's no doubt in it. There is just a certainty in it. And you rest in that certainty that exactly what God says will be done will indeed happen. Jesus, who was righteous and always did what was righteous, completed a work. And we have faith that what he did accomplished exactly what he said it accomplished. Our hope is not built on a system of our accomplishment, on others' accomplishment. It's built on a system of someone who accomplished something who was perfect, someone who always did 100% of what God has asked. He is 100% perfect. His record stands at 100%. Jesus did everything that was required of him. So Christian hope does not even entertain the idea that it might not come true, that it could go another way. Christian hope can't even entertain the idea that I could lose my salvation because our hope is not what we've accomplished or what we're holding on to, but upon what Christ has accomplished. It's not as though God gave us a ticket to heaven and said, boy, you better hang on to that, don't lose it. You better put that in a place that you don't forget. Men, if you're like me, you lose your wallet or keys about once a month. And I always tell my wife, I don't lose them, I eventually find them. I've never lost them eternally. I eventually find them. Somehow I still look like an idiot because every month or so I lose my wallet or my keys. Where's my wallet? There's been a couple of times where I get kind of frantic and I have the entire family tearing cushions apart, trying to find this thing. And of course, it is just sitting in some place that I thought was a very special place. And I would, of course, remember exactly where it was. Now, if our hope rested in our activity, in taking that ticket of salvation and placing it somewhere or keeping it, keeping grip on it, we would have all lost our salvation a long time ago. Our hope is not like that. It's based in what Christ has already accomplished. He's already set it in motion. It's part of God's sovereign execution of what's happening throughout history. There was a young lady who called our church a few months ago. She was urgent. I think it was a couple years ago, actually. She was urgent to talk to the pastor because she was afraid she had committed the unpardonable sin. She was a young lady in Georgia, a teenage girl. I talked to her once, and I handed it off to my wife. I didn't think it would be appropriate for me to be taking these phone calls. She called time and time again, wanting to be assured that she didn't commit the unpardonable sin. The bottom line is, young lady, if you have faith in Christ, if you believe in Him, you've not committed the unpardonable sin. If you trust in Him and repent of your sins and follow after Christ, because it's not up to you whether or not you hold on to that ticket. God has secured you. And the evidence that God has secured you is that you continue to exert faith in Him. You continue to trust in Him and believe in Him. You can't say something or do something and lose that as though you're in charge of your eternity. What do we sing in that great new hymn? Jesus commands my destiny. I'm not in charge. Ultimately, it's up to Him and His strength that's in charge of my destiny. Well, this young lady had forgotten that true, settled, secure Christian hope that Peter speaks of here. He's not talking about a hope that's ambivalent, a hope like we use the word hope. This is a totally different mentality. Salvation is based upon the accomplishment of Christ, not on our accomplishment. Our hope is based on who He is. So to even ask the question, can I lose my salvation, is like asking, can Jesus be evil? Can Jesus do wrong? Can Jesus stop being the Son of God? 
If the answer is no, then I can have hope. These things cannot happen because Jesus has hold of our eternal hope. That's why Peter said this hope is a living hope. It is a, a, something that is settled and it's there living and breeding in us joy. It's producing a constant flow of joy, this living hope. That's what our hope is made of. It's a living hope, not just something that happened a long time ago. It's something that continues to bring us joy. Every once in a while, you talk to someone about salvation, and they'll say something along the lines of, well, I sure hope, and they're using the word hope in a human way. I sure hope I am. I'm really trying my best to get to heaven. And I really hope that I've done enough in the end. No one can really be sure about this. I'm doing my best. Well, that sounds like a very humble response. But in fact, it's a rejection of what God has said about Christ's accomplishment for us. It's a rejection of the security and finality of what Jesus has done on the cross. It may sound humble, but it's actually quite prideful. That person doesn't understand the warp and woof of the gospel, that what Jesus has accomplished is completely apart from you. It is something that He's accomplished that stands forever. And you can't get Him up on the cross and re-crucify Him again and again. It's something that He's accomplished forever. The gospel is centered not on your own righteousness, but imputed righteousness that is settled and perfect and forever. It is the righteousness of Christ. We're not getting to heaven by our own accomplishment, but by His. So in that way, we can have this living hope. That's the kind of joyous hope that Peter's talking about. And he wanted them to see the hope that we could rest in and settle in. Well, this brings us to point number one. Maybe you're taking notes. Number one, hope in final resurrection. Hope in final resurrection. Because of Christ, we can rejoice in the hope that one day we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Who is He? He's the resurrected Son of God, and we will see Him because we will have been made like Him. Our bodies will be resurrected, will be reconstituted into eternal lives, just as we heard from Daniel today. Eternal, uncorruptible bodies, eternal perfection, and we will be with Him in that perfection, and we'll be with Him in that place of perfection with the perfect God worshiping the triune God forever. Look down in verse 23 of here, chapter 1. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. When God gave us the new birth... We were granted eternal life, not potential eternal life, not possible eternal life. If you don't mess it up, no, He birthed us into a new existence. Peter, uh, or Paul would say, He made us a new creation. He gave us the eternal spirit, which one day will be united with an eternal body just like Jesus a resurrected, eternal, holy body. And this resurrection, it's by Him and for Him and because of Him and because of that, we'll be like Him. We'll see Him. The focus will be on God, on His activity, on what He's accomplished in us. Again, not our accomplishment, His accomplishment. Most religions, even some Christian denominations, do not teach this idea. They have missed the whole point in this passage. They're afraid, perhaps, if they teach that once you're saved, you're always saved. They teach if you, they, they believe if you teach that, then maybe people will turn around and live like the devil, but they miss the whole point. The hope that is birthed in us is an enduring, eternal, living hope. True believers will continue to live in that hope, even if they make mistakes and fall away for a moment. That hope is a living hope that's been born in us. And they always come back to it. So a Christian will not take security in some decision 
and say, my hope is in a decision I made. No, they will continually, the rest of their lives, go back to the hope of Jesus Christ. No matter what comes. That's what true believers do. They persevere. We'll get more to this in the next section. Sometimes you hear about people, I think the word these days is people who have deconstructed their faith. The right word is apostatized. The old English word was tergiversated. I can't even say it. What that word from the Latin means is they turned their back on it. We hear about people like this, right? They come to church, they make a decision, they look like a Christian for a while, and then eventually they say they deconstruct. That's an arrogant way because they think that they've done some more higher intellectual thought and they've you know, intellectually deconstructed their faith. And of course, in their minds, they think they've just deconstructed everybody's faith because if they're smart enough to figure it out, everybody should be smart enough to figure it out unless they're not as smart as they are. They have apostatized. They've turned away from the faith. Someone say, well, what about these people? Weren't they genuine Christians? They made a decision to follow Jesus and... Now they've turned away. Isn't this a demonstration that people can lose their salvation? No, what they demonstrate is that people can be around Christianity. People can deceive others that they're a Christian. In fact, they can deceive their own hearts that they are a Christian when in fact God has never put genuine living hope and living faith inside of them. They demonstrate what we all know, that humans are deceptive. And humans can confuse themselves. But the fact that they've turned away is merely a revelation of who they really are because the hope that God births in us in salvation is indeed a living, persevering hope. The fact that people apostatize by definition means they never had that living hope in them to begin with. They didn't have eternal life. They didn't have enduring faith. They didn't have the very things that God promises when He gives someone the new birth. By definition, the faith and hope that God grants a believer is, the, uh, is born in them a heart that loves God and endures and grows, it metastasizes to the rest of their lives, it changes who they are all the way to the point that they reach the resurrection. And that's what is promised here. God has caused us by His mercy. He's birthed in us. He's born in us a living hope that this will go all the way to the resurrection when I get to see Jesus and I have eternal life and I experience it forever. Hope in a resurrection. Two, hope in eternal inheritance. Hope in eternal inheritance. Inheritance here describes what is in store for the believer. The language here is borrowed from Joshua, where they looked to enter the promised land. Everyone had been given a promise, right? Not only a generic promise, but God even broke it down by family. This is where you're going to be. This is what you're going to inherit. This is where you will live. These are the rivers and streams and cities and produce that you will enjoy. That's your inheritance. God has given all believers an inheritance. We have a new heaven. We have a new earth. We'll be given new bodies. We'll have eternal glory. We'll have no more tears. All of this is located in our promised land. This is our inheritance. Inheritance, of course, is the dead giving to the living what the living did not earn or deserve. This is precisely what happened. Jesus died and gives to us through His death what we do not earn or deserve, an inheritance. Most of us 
You enter your 40s, you start thinking about the future, you start thinking about your kids. You get into your 40s and you realize, I'm not doing near enough what I ought to be doing. And inflation is happening at such a rate that we all realize we're not going to be able to get close to giving our kids what they're going to need to survive. But it's giving to them what they didn't earn, but what you're working towards. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's accomplished this and secured, secured for us an inheritance. Now, Peter goes through a very familiar passage of Scripture. Peter goes through and describes this inheritance, and he uses a number of words. The first word there, this inheritance, is undefiled. The first, excuse me, I said undefiled. The first uh, word there is imperishable. To an inheritance, verse 4, that is imperishable. That means it's eternal. It goes on and on. It does not perish. There's no end to it. There's an end to everything that we have now. Everything that you see, even your body, there's an end to it. Everything that we are in possession of is in the process of dying. This is the second law of thermodynamics. Some of you can tell you if you're older than 40, you can say, the law of thermodynamics, entropy, is happening in my body. I'm watching it fall apart. I wake up and there are new pains and new things, new ways that my body is disintegrating and falling apart. Everything is undergoing this process of perishing. Our inheritance is imperishable. Some people are saying, wait till you're 70. Your body and mind are falling apart. Things all around us are falling apart. Oh, what bliss when one day we'll be given something that is imperishable, an inheritance that is imperishable. He goes on and says it's imperishable. It is undefiled, meaning sin cannot reach it. There's nothing in this world that's not affected by sin and the curse. This whole world is groaning, Paul would say. It's affected by sin and the curse of God upon that sin. That's why it has to be wiped out and a new heaven, a new earth created. That's why our bodies must be resurrected. We must be given new bodies. We have the residue. Even if our souls and spirits are redeemed, our bodies are not redeemed. We have the residue of sin on us. But our inheritance is undefiled. We're going to receive something that is not touched by sin. We're going to receive something that's not defiled. Can you imagine this, folks? It's amazing to think that something we'll be ownership of is not touched, is not touched by corruption and sin. Here we are. We're starting to get into the re-election season, and we all come to this point where we ask this question, is there any politician who's not corrupt? The answer is no. They're all corrupt. I'm sure there are some that are less corrupt than others. But if they are human, they are corrupt. Everyone on this earth is corrupt. Everything is corrupt. Everything is touched by sin. But what joy we have that our inheritance is undefiled. It's in a place reserved for us that is undefiled. Sin cannot reach it. Our inheritance, thirdly, he says, is something that won't fade away. It is unfading, the ESV says. In other words, time won't get to it by way of erosion or degradations. It's not going to get worse as time goes on. I, I remember having this thought as a kid. Uh, you know, God, I, I enjoy going to church just like any kid, singing the songs, but an eternal worship service would get kind of repetitive, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm going to get a little bored. Maybe the second year, I mean, you know, I've heard this song 633,000 times. And so I thought, is heaven going to get kind of boring? Is it going to kind of start to get repetitive? Maybe in the second year or in the millionth year? The answer is no. It is something that will not fade. The joy, the brilliance... The glory will never fade. 
It's going to be just as exhilarating as the day you step foot into heaven. You'll be there 10,000 years, and it'll be the same glory that you experienced that very first day. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It's going to be just as joyous as the day we entered heaven. It will not lose its luster, not one bit. That inheritance we have is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. Then Peter adds that our inheritance is kept in heaven for you. In other words, it is guarded in a safe place that cannot be touched. When you build a house, some people have built a safe room. They don't do this a lot here in Hawaii, but places that, a place maybe that an earthquake or bad weather can't touch. Or maybe in places where there's high crime, people build a safe room. Maybe it's so, maybe it's there for protection or because of fire or flood or whatever. The idea is that whatever's in that safe, it is kept safe. No matter what happens on the outside, it's kept safe. It's kept from harm or destruction or theft. Well, we have a guarantee from someone who cannot lie, God Himself, that our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. It's guarded by Him. Verse 3 is in the past. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Verse 4 is the pre present. Our inheritance is currently imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and currently it is reserved for us in heaven. Heaven right now is reserved for us. It's kept in a safe place. When I was um, in Oklahoma last week, I told you about that, we... Didn't have a whole lot of time for personal stuff, but I did get a chance to go to a University of Oklahoma football game. Their opening, their home opener there. Um, uh, grew up kind of going to those games, and so it was exciting to go there. Of course, I bought these tickets, and a couple of my kids went with me with some cousins, and uh, we're right there sort of in the middle of the sun, sun beating down on us. It was great. It was exhilarating, but the Oklahoma sun is very hot and uh, sort of miserable there. At halftime, I had been invited by my brother-in-law, who works for a company, and he had tickets to a suite. And uh, I told the girls uh, that I was going to the bathroom and uh, snuck away, and I had that ticket on my phone to the suite. And it took me a while, but I figured out finally where you go. And there's this stairway. And there was a guard there in front of that stairway, and I, I went up to the guard and I said, um, I have this ticket, and uh, am I allowed, is this, is this where I go up these stairs, uh, out of the heat, into the suites? And uh, he said, oh yes, you have a ticket, enter into my rest. And um, <laughs> I ascended the stairs, and I went up to that suite, and it's beautiful, it's air conditioning, you have review machines, big lustrous, big bolstered seats, and a big buffet with all the food that you can imagine, and everyone's up there smiling and happy and cool and watching this game. It was beautiful. But the only way I could get into there was with that reservation. At that point, at that, the bottom of that stairway, all these hot, sweaty, stinky, sinful people around me, they were barred from entry without a reservation. I had what it took to get in. This is what this verse is saying. You have a reservation. And one day, you're going to ascend those stairs and enter into my suite. And you're going to sit down at the banqueting table and rejoice forevermore. You have a reservation. It is kept in heaven for you. Nothing can touch it. And this is the way I will separate. You have that reservation. You're granted entry. Our inheritance is reserved and protected for us. It is waiting for us at the right time when God has appointed that we will be granted entry. We have that place reserved for us. Number three, look at verse five, really beginning with the last word of verse, verse, word of verse four. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Number three, hope in divine protection. When you think about salvation, when you read about salvation in the New Testament, 
you can pretty quickly discern how that word salvation is being used. Is it being used in the past tense? In other words, is it talking about the moment of regeneration and faith, when you express faith and are justified? There's a few times in the Bible that word salvation is used to talk about something that took place in your heart in the past, the moment of regeneration and faith and repentance as you were saved. Sometimes we Christians, I think this is probably the way we most talk about salvation. I was saved. I once was lost, but now I'm saved. It took place something in the past. It also can be used to talk about something that is ongoing. Paul liked to use the word salvation to talk about the ongoing work of salvation in your heart, that God began a good work in you and He continues to do this work in you, providing you faith, providing you a desire to do what's right, providing you repentance, and you continue in that faith all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. Most of the time, believe it or not, the word salvation is used to talk about, in the New Testament, a future salvation. That separation of sheep and goats, when we are saved from God's wrath, acquitted of our wrongdoing because of Christ. So that's most of the time, and Peter even alludes to that in this passage. Guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's a future tense salvation. We are saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. And that's that future tense, that's the way in which Peter is talking about salvation. Something that will happen one day. Something that we anticipate, something that we look forward to. And on that day that the punishment of Christ will be applied to us and His righteousness will be applied to us in the same way, imputed to us, and will be granted entry. That is the salvation that will be ready to be revealed to us in the last time. That eternal existence in glory, it says, is protected by God. Protected there or kept in the Greek is a word related to the word phalanx. You know that word? Some of you men like to think about the Roman Empire. You know about phalanxes, these impenetrable guards. It's like a shield. Nothing can come through that. It is kept guard by God. Our salvation is not fully realized now. But we are protected. It is settled, and we are protected. How is it protected? It says very clearly, it is protected by God producing in us, by the Spirit, faith. It's by faith. God protects us. He provides us faith, and we continue to have faith. We continue to turn back to God, repenting of our sin, continue to have faith. Well, this speaks about Assurance, doesn't it? How does a Christian have assurance? How do we know we are saved? How would you know that someone else is saved? Now, you can't ever really know someone's heart, but the Bible does say, by your fruits you will know them. So how do you know someone is saved? How do you know that you yourself are saved? It's simply the faith and repentance that you have, right? That you're producing. I like to say our assurance is our endurance. We're not assured of our salvation because we prayed some prayer 27 years ago and someone patted us on the head and said, now you're going to heaven. Our assurance is by the consistent flow of faith that God by His Spirit through His Word is providing us. Does that mean Christians don't fall away? No, Christians can fall away for a moment, but guess what they don't have in that time? Assurance. Because they don't know, because they're not having faith, they don't know that they're being protected by God. And so they've walked away, having stepped away, perhaps momentarily, from faith. They don't have the assurance that they were not like the apostates, that it wasn't genuine to begin with. No, only through that faith that God constantly provides can they have that assurance that they are protected all the way to the end. God provides us that faith. 
the Puritans would say that if your faith is not an enduring faith, you bear the black tidings that you are not His elect. Your faith must be an enduring faith. That's how God protects us, by granting us perseverance. We're going to get to this a lot more next week because this becomes the source of joy, this, this perseverance. Isn't that hard to believe that we find joy because of hardship and difficulty? Now, Peter's going to explain this to us because through those difficulties, God provides us faith. He provides us a desire to love Him. He, under the squeeze of life, we come running to Him. True believers come running to Him because we have faith in Him. I was reading one of the commentators, and he went back to that triune explanation of this protection. Back up in verses 1 and 2, he said, We are guarded by the Father's purpose. It says in John 6, 38 and 39, For I have come down from heaven... Jesus is speaking, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Christ will lose nothing. That's God's will. Everyone who is given to Christ will not be lost, will be raised up in the last day. Uh, commentator said, number two, we're protected by the Son's promise. So that's the Father's purpose, the Son's promise, John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. And we're protected by the Spirit's seal. You know what a seal is. The king back in the day would roll up a letter and they would take some wax and he would take his ring and would plant his seal on it. And that would be opened only by the person to whom it was intended, by, by the promise and seal of the king. It would not be broken except when the king wanted it to be opened. The king would pick, do this, and the king would ensure by his own name and his own mark that this person would be, or this thing would be sealed until the appropriate time. The same idea is that the seal in, in Ephesians chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit is like that seal, He is like earnest money. That's why it's called earnest money, because this promise is an earnest promise. It's a sincere promise, and He gives us as a guarantee that we'll make it all the way to the end. So God, the triune God, protects us like a phalanx all the way to the end. So again, if we look that all these things, we've been born again to this living hope. God has born in our hearts and born in our lives this hope. It's a hope. It's a hope of resurrection. It's a hope of inheritance. It's a hope that we are divinely protected all the way to the end, that we will one day walk through those gates. I was reading a Puritan this week, William Dyer. He said, heaven is not only promised by Christ, it is purchased by Christ. In other words, Jesus didn't say, hey, there's a wonderful place that I'm going to make possible for you. No. When He died and rose, the purchase was made. The transaction already occurred. So that when we gather and sing about it, we can sing about it as though it's already happened. We can sing about it as though we're already in heaven. We have already received the inheritance because it's as true as if we have. It's as certain as if we have. So you can't say, well, can a Christian lose their salvation? No, that's an oxymoron. That's like jumbo shrimp or government efficiency. These things are self-contradictory. To say a person can lose their salvation, salvation is a guarantee all the way to the end. Salvation is something that we receive and God guards it through faith and perseverance by His triune being all the way to the end. And so Peter uses this first pillar, the pillar of hope, to drive us to holy living. We get down to verse 13. This hope becomes a motivation. We are so full of the joy that hope provides that we can endure 
all things. We want to glorify Him through all things. Well, the logic of this hope, the joy that this hope brings us, takes us to the next uh, part of the paragraph, and we're going to get to that next week, the joy of perseverance. And we'll talk about that next time. Let's pray that we'll find deep, abounding, life-changing joy as we reflect on the hope provided to us in Christ. Father, we do pray that you would have filled us with hope and joy this morning. And we pray for those who don't know you in this room. Lord, I have no doubt that you have your sheep in this room who have not yet come to saving faith. We pray that today would be the day of salvation that they would reach out in faith and repentance, that you would fill them with that faith and desire to follow you. And Lord, then you will protect them all the way to the day of your return or their death. And Lord, we pray that you would grant them that faith even now as we pray this prayer. All of us, Lord, we ask that you'd continue to provide us this joy as we live this life, knowing that that joy of the hope that is within us will motivate us to holy living. Help us in this, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's stand for a benediction. I'm going to read straight from Ephesians. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all and in all.